Can we pray for just a second? Heavenly Father, thank you so very much, God, for this another day. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your peace and your love, Lord God, that transcends all understanding. Guys, we're going through troubled times as we're going through these things that are happening to our world, Lord God. We know that we can stand on our true foundation, and that foundation is you. Your love is forever. You are victorious, Lord, over all these things. God, we hold on to the truth that you say in your word, God, that you will be here, that you are here with us now. God, let us put our peace and rest on you. Let us put our troubles and trials in your hands. And God, know that they're totally covered by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And we'll give you all the honor, glory, and praise in Jesus' name. And all of my brothers and sisters said, amen. You may be seated. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Michael. It's good to worship this morning, isn't it? It's good to worship this morning, right? Wow, come on. I uh, was talking to a, a lady last Sunday, and uh, she made the statement that, uh, she, you know, summertime, a lot of people are out and just doing different things during the summer, like many of you have done. We just what you do in the summer. You travel, you vacation, you got things going on, and uh, sometimes you're away on the weekends. And so she made the statement that, man, because I think I said something about it's good to see you today. She's like, yeah, I just needed my Jesus. I, I needed some Jesus. In other words, she needed to be at church. It's been a while. And, you know, it's good for us. It's it's necessary for us as followers of Jesus together, together. I was at a men's event with some of our guys uh, Friday evening at a sister church, and uh, the pastor there, he made a statement that I haven't really thought through, but, you know, we use this term social distancing lately, and, and we understand what that means, but we've taken it to the extreme where we are actually disconnecting ourselves socially from people, and that's not ever uh, the case that should be taking place in our lives. We are created to be social, to be communal, to be in relationship with God and with other people. And so he, he and their church have made the, the decision. They don't say social distancing. They say physical distancing, which emphasizes the need for social interaction. And, and I know some who have not obviously come back to church for various reasons, but please, let's not isolate ourselves. We need the Lord. We need one another. We need together, together for times of worship and instruction. And this is not just during COVID season. This is a, the part of the life of the believer, the life of the church has been going on for two millennia now. So I hope you've enjoyed singing this morning. We've lifted our voices. We praise the Lord uh, who is our Redeemer. We've acknowledged His greatness. We've acknowledged the peace that He brings in our lives, the grace that He gives us, the love that He's shown toward us. We've recognized even in, in the things that we've said about Him or sung to the Lord, we've also recognized our own weakness. We've recognized our own sinfulness. When we talk about a Redeemer, it, 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 it magnifies and, and reveals that there's someone who needs to be redeemed. There is a weakness there. There's a sin there. There's a, there's a lacking there that only God, through His Son, Jesus Christ, can provide and meet. And so in response to weakness and in response to sin, we've gloried in the cross this morning. We've made much of the, of, of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. We praise the Lord for removing that curse. And the way the Bible describes it is that he became a curse for us. And that's what I want to speak to this morning. I want to talk to the subject of simply cursed. As we look at Revelation 16, we're going to see this word, this concept, used multiple times. In fact, as we think of the cross of Jesus, we think of Jesus being the curse for us. We think about the cross, we, 
We know it's a bloody scene. We know it's a torturous scene. We know, scene. We know it's a painful scene. But for us as Christians, it's also a beautiful picture of the love and the justice of God. Where it was satisfied there. Where it was magnified there. In regards to this, this, in regards to this William Barclay said this. He says, the cross is the proof that there is no length to which the love of God will refuse to go in order to win men's hearts. He says the cross is the medium of reconciliation because the cross is the final proof of the love of God. And a love like that demands an answering love, a response he's saying back to it. If the cross will not, be, will not awaken love and wonder in men's hearts, nothing will. I hope this morning as we've sang and as we've, we've talked and we've contemplated, even in the songs that we've sung, I hope that we have disturbed your hearts and your minds as we sing about the cross and what that means for us as believers. As we move now into the 16th chapter of Revelation, we're going to see that the response of sinners to the cross is anything but love. It's anything but wonder. Instead, what we're going to see here in this chapter is that it is a fury, a fury raging against the Lord rather than faith. As God here unleashes this just judgment against sinners who are worshiping the beast and its image, what they're going to do as we read this, we're going to see them curse God. They're going to curse God and refuse to recognize that he is the one who became the curse for them. Let's read this chapter this morning, and then I want to share three thoughts And then we're going to observe the Lord's Supper together. John tells us this. He says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temples telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It's what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and it was in the water Its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. And then Jesus speaks here. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled, that is the kings of the world, they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. 
The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. The seven bowls here that we've read in this chapter share some similarities with the seven trumpet plagues that we've studied already. Both of these series, if you've paid attention, if you looked at them closely, you probably recognize that both of them contain certain commonalities with the Egyptian plagues in the Exodus that Moses was a part of. So we've discovered as we've walked through the text over the last several, I guess, months now, we've discovered in the seven bowls, we've discovered through this that the judgments leading up to this seven bowls, um, there's an intensity taking place in the judgment. It's been severe. You started the seven seals, and there's There's intense judgment. You move to the trumpets, it's even hotter in its intensity. Now we come to the bowls, and it's going to be magnified to the nth degree. Intense judgment from God is coming, culminating, like we saw last week in chapter 15, verse 1, where this is going to be the end. The wrath of God will be finished. Next Sunday, what we're going to do is we're going to come back to this chapter. We're going to unpack all of these verses and talk about the severe and intense judgment. We're going to examine the wrath of God in greater detail. But today, as we prepare ourselves to observe the Lord's Supper, I want you to understand these judgments in the context of this titanic struggle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. George Eldon Ladd is a commentator that I read quite often, and he points out that the judgments here are not the expressions of God's wrath against sin in general. The, the sin in general is going to be taking place more at the, the throne judgments. Here, it's, it's kind of the idea of the outpouring of his wrath upon him who would frustrate the divine purpose in the world. That is the beast, but also upon those who worship the beast. So there is some individualistic uh, judgments here, but it's really putting an end to the movement, the rebellion against God. I was thinking even this morning, contemplating over this passage again, and you remember you go to the book of Job, in the first two chapters, you've got Satan coming to the throne room of heaven, walking back and forth, strutting his stuff before the Lord, and he's basically acting like he's the ruler of this world, and God just asks him a question, have you considered my servant Job? And so Satan thinks that he rules this world, but God shows him through Job and through the things he allowed to happen to Job that he is in control of all things. And though it may seem like the enemy is winning today, though it may seem like Satan is conquering today, and it will feel like that for, the do- for those who are living during this time, God shows us over and over in his word that he is in control. And here it's culminating. Everything he's been saying throughout salvation history leading to this point that there will be a day that judgment comes against those who rebel and disobey the Lord. The wrath of God will be unleashed. It will be poured out upon the beasts and those who have given loyalty to the beast. And so as we read, or as we read just a moment ago through these verses, 
Did you notice? Did you did you notice that the response of these people who are experiencing these bold judgment being poured out on them? Did you notice that rather than move, being moved to repentance, being moved to faith, being moved to a place of brokenness and, and, and vulnerability, understanding that the judgment coming against them is because they rebelled and denied their, their loyalty to the Lord, did you notice that they didn't do that, but instead they cursed the Lord? Every time I read chapter 16, that's the thing that stands out to me the most, that in the face of incredible I mean, the most severe judgments the Bible ever has shown or displayed, in the midst of all of that, in the face of that, rather than bowing the knee in repentance, they stick their fists up in the sky and curse God. The Bible tells us they did not repent, repent, or turn from their sins. Instead, they curse God. Grant Osborne says says in his commentary, he says, evil here participates in its own destruction. See, they refuse to repent of their sins, and they curse God, and though, and because of that, the, the judgment of God is unleashed upon them. All throughout Revelation, what we've seen is God extending grace, extending grace, extending grace, even in the face of judgments, giving people an opportunity, a warning, a call for repentance and faith. And we've seen some of those come to faith, to faith, like when the two witnesses there who are martyred and all the things that happen in that scene in Revelation 11, we see a great movement among the people as they turn from sin, turn from rebellion, and turn in faith to the Lord. But here, in this final opportunity, there will be what seems like none of that taking place. These bowls are the final chance for them to repent, and God's word tells us that they did not repent of their deeds. And so let's look at those who are cursed. I want to show you this morning three groups or three individuals, if you will, that we need to recognize in this cursing, this cursed part of Scripture. First thing I want you to, to see or to be aware of is that the righteousness of God justly curses the ungodly for their wickedness. So as we look at this chapter, we see these different groups of people being cursed. And the first one is that God righteously is judging, cursing, bringing condemnation upon those who have rebelled against him, who are pursuing wickedness and want nothing to do with the Lord. And so the judgment here poured out from this first bowl in in verse 2 caused terrible and painful sores to break out on all the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Think about what's going to take place in this first bowl. Major medical disaster is going to sweep the earth. This is going to be a pandemic similar to the Egyptian plague in Exodus chapter 9. The sores will resemble much of what Job had to experience in his own body in Job chapter 2. It will be a global and medical disaster of epic proportions all over the face of the earth. We're told here that the judgment will fall only on those who worship the beast and worshiped its image. And so those who are the church, those who are the redeemed, those who are the children of God present during this tribulational period, they will be spared from this judgment because God is not judging the the saints. God is not judging the redeemed. He's judging those who've continued to rebel against him. God's judgment here is just. It is a just judgment against the wicked of the world. Sometimes we think about 
justice and we think about judgment, and we may equate it with a level of unfairness. We may equate it with the idea of maybe that's just a little too much or that's a little harsh for the, for the crime that's been committed. But here we need to know that God's judgment is always just. In fact, his character demands such judgment. Let me share with you four aspects of God's character that would lead us to this righteous judgment being brought upon the wicked. First of all is the, the, the characteristics of sovereignty. We serve a sovereign God. He is sovereignly in control of all things. He is the creator, the ruler, and redeemer of all that there is. Therefore, he is, as God, the one who calls the shots. He's the one who makes the rules. He's the one who says, here's the line, and if you cross it, there's a payment to be paid. There's a penalty to be paid. And when you cross it, he always holds the line. Now, we many times never hold the line or rarely hold the line. We do it as a government. We'll say, here's the red line. You shall not cross this. And then when the, someone transgresses the line, we back off. We do it as parents. We say, if you do that again, you're going to get it. And what happens? The kid does it. And do they get it? Rarely don't. God never, never backs off on his judgment. He is sovereignly ruling and reigning over all things. Therefore, he alone has the authority to establish the rules and set the parameters by which his creatures, you and I, live and have their being. It's his word alone that has authority. Right here. This is the authority that God has. This is what he said. And as one of our church value states, the word of God or the Bible has final authority. It takes precedence over our opinions, emotions, and preferences. God is sovereign. And so when we think about him righteously judging the wicked, his sovereignty demands that and his sovereignty allows for that. There's a second characteristic, and that is his holiness. God's holiness means that he is perfect, it means that he is pure. It means that he is separate from all that is not holy. His holiness means he detests sins and demands purity in his creatures. God demands purity in our life. Why? It's because he's holy. And the word of God tells us that we, as his creatures, redeemed or unredeemed, we are to be holy because God is holy. It goes back to Genesis 1 and 2. We are to be his image bearers. We bear his image in this world. We're to look like him, act like him. We're to smell like the Lord in everything that we do. Holiness. I love the words of Habakkuk, chapter 1, verse 13, speaking of God, says, You who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. God is pure and holy. He has no fellowship with darkness and sin. A third characteristic is his justice. God is a good and perfect judge. This is the testimony of Scripture over and over and over again. And so just as it would be wrong for a human judge to let the guilty go free, God would not be just to let man's rebellion go unpunished. Many times we will get upset when we hear of a judge or, or a, a parole board allowing someone to get out of prison prematurely from our perspective. And we sit there and argue the fact that we don't believe they've paid their debt to society, that they've not paid for the crimes that they've committed, and we believe it's unfair when a judge will allow that to happen or a parole board. We would say the same thing about the Lord. God is just in his justice. He always holds the line. Psalm Chapter Psalm 9, verses 7 and 8 says, But the Lord sets enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. 
There's a fourth characteristic of God speaks to his, his ability to judge the wicked, and that is his love. Now, how in the world could love be equated with judgment? It always is. You see, as a loving father watches over and cares for and corrects his children, God in the fullest way lovingly does so for his creatures. It's God's love for humanity that moves him to judge sin and the sinner. He fully understands its dangers. He fully understands the destructions. It's like if I were to see my children moving toward an area or, or a lifestyle that would be detrimental to them, how dare me to never step in there and say, that is wrong, that is a path you cannot take, you must not take that, and do everything necessary to keep them from that. So God, in his love for his creatures, judges sin. Otherwise, in our fallenness, we would just fall off the face of the earth. We would fall into depravity. We would fall into sin because we are perpetually drawn to those things in our life. But God warns us in his word of the dangers because he loves us. He judges us because he loves us. Judgment is meant to be a protector. It shows sinners the dangers of evil as well as the provision found in Jesus. So God is just in his judgment against wickedness. The angel, if we look at verse 5, 6, and 7, the angel here in the altar declare the justness of God and pouring out this wrath. Then the altar basically amends what was being said by the angel over the waters, saying, yes, Lord, the God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. And so heaven is erupting, praising and heralding the judgment of God and the justice of God in this scene. God is righteous in his judgment. Sin is always met with that justice. In fact, we know sinners receive the just payment for their rebellion against God. Paul said it this way to the church at Rome, for the wages of sin is what? It's death. God told Adam, don't eat of that tree, and the day that you eat of it, you will die. The payment for sin, the payment for rebellion, if you will, is death. It's separation. It's you getting what you want. But it's not what you need. Judgment is falling. There's a second thing I want you to see, a second group. And that is the ungodly, rebelliously curse God for the judgment that's unleashed on them. You see this in verses 9, 11, and 21. In response to the judgment that comes from the bowls of wrath, these who are rebelling, rebelling against God curse God. They curse him rather than repent. They curse him rather than fall out in faith. So like the response of the ungodly break in the breaking of the sixth seal and the blowing of the sixth trumpet, they refuse to repent of their evil deeds and worship of the beast. They're not going to relent from those things. They're not going to pull back from those things. They're going to continue to press forward in their rebellion against the Lord. They blame God for their pain and suffering. Is it God's fault that they're suffering? Is God to blame for the pain that they're feeling in their bodies, the sores that they have, and all of the things that come with these bowls of wrath? Is it God's fault that that's being poured out? No, it's their fault. They've rebelled against God. They deserve the punishment. It's like when we discipline our own children, but to the nth degree. I mean, we're not to blame for their rebellion and their disobedience. Whatever consequences surround those circumstances, they're to blame. And yet they play the victim. They never look inwardly. They never consider that what they've done is the cause for their situation. They blame God as oppressor 
See, the ungodly here are blind and unable to see the awfulness of their spiritual condition. They never consider that they're the ones who are lost and undone. They're also blind to the goodness and grace of Christ. Rather than seeing the judgment and and, and the provision that's also provided there, they never see that. Instead, they shake their fists in the face of God and curse Him and blame Him for their, their situation. Sin always robs the person of every joy that he or she could have in God, the one who created and loves that person. Sin always does that. That's what it's doing here. Sin kills the life that could be had in God, and it blinds the person from seeing his or her spiritual condition and the need for redemption, and that is what's happening here. They are blind because they're dead. This leads to a third curse. The righteous Lamb of God became a curse so that the ungodly might be made holy. You read the text and you're like, where do you see that at in chapter 16? I'm going to pull it from verse 15. Jesus speaks. It's in parentheses. It's almost like it's a parenthetical type of thought that John heard and put in. Or John is equating back to this scene. But it's a reminder that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is Savior. He is Redeemer. He has done what's necessary to bring redemption to the wicked. And this same Jesus who died on a cross is the same Jesus who's coming in judgment, but also coming for the redeemed. So in the midst of these judgment here, Jesus speaks. He reminds the redeemed and the wicked of his return. Oh, we need to be reminded today of the return of Jesus. I was listening yesterday as I was headed uh, on an errand. I was listening to the radio, and it was a, a talk show in one of the Christian stations, and they had a couple pastors, and they're kind of equating the circumstances that are happening in the world today. And, of course, they're equating them back to her, trying to read them into the storyline of Scripture and the return of Christ. And I didn't agree with their tribulational position, right, because I've got it figured out, and, and they're wrong. That's a joke, by the way. But they were talking about this, and though I might have not agreed with their particulars in their discussion, I did agree with the fact that Jesus is returning and is soon returning. It's a soon return. We need to be reminded of that. This promise here reminds us that the battle has already been won. In these bold judgments, Jesus is warring against Satan and those who have sworn allegiance to him. His love for humanity, however, has never wavered. His love was personified upon the cross. What did Paul say to to the church at Rome in Romans 5, 8? God demonstrates his love in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, the love of God for sinners has never wavered. Jesus is the one who took the sins of humanity upon himself there on the cross. He, according to 1 Peter 2.24, bore our sins in order that we might be healed. He did that for us. Paul reminded the church at Galatia of God's righteous judgment and the curse against those who broke his commandments. He also pointed out there in chapter 3 how Jesus became the curse for them on the cross. That he received the judgment so that sinners could be set free from the curse. Listen to what Galatians 3.13 says. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. When we think about the judgment bowls being poured out here and how awful it's going to be for those who are wicked and unwilling to repent of sin, we also recognize and glory in the fact that but for the grace of God, there go we. 
Lord's been gracious to us. We've opened our eyes to faith. We've responded to the Spirit of God as it wooed us and drawed us and, 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 if you will, sparked us to life in the Lord Jesus. If it wasn't for that, we would walk in rebellion too. Today, be grateful for the fact that the righteous Lamb of God took your sins upon himself. He who knew no sin, what does the Bible say? Became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. That's what the Bible tells us Jesus did. Today, we acknowledge and celebrate the cross. We glory in the redeeming action of God, the Son there on the tree. So much more than something that hangs around our neck or something that dangles from your ears. It's so much more than something that you may carry in your pocket or some symbol that's on the wall in your house. The cross is not an idol to be placed up and looked at occasionally. The cross is something that we glory in because if it wasn't for the cross and the blood shed there, you and I, you and I would all be in our sin today. If it wasn't for a tomb that's empty in Israel today, we would also... 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, have nothing to boast about, no life to glory in. The blood that Jesus shed on Calvary paid the penalty for our sin. It satisfied the holy and just wrath of God the Father against our rebellion. So the only proper response is that of humility, that of surrender, that of repentance, and that of faith. The things that we do not see the wicked doing in this chapter. Last weekend, in our back-to-school bash, I got to share a little bit of this with the second service last week, but had an opportunity to, to meet this past week with this young man. And, but anyway, last Saturday night, he was there in our service, and he's a little younger than our student ministry, but he was there with his older sister. And, and even while singing, we were singing a song called Be Enthroned. I think that's the name of it. And so while singing that song, this young man began to realize that is what needs to be a part of my life. I, I need to have Jesus enthroned on the throne of my life. I need to be following him and surrendered to him. And, and so as the service went on and he heard the gospel and heard a call to, to repent and turn in faith to Jesus, that was his response. And so that, more, that evening in the service, he faithed into the Lord Jesus. Gets home, he can't wait to tell his parents about it. Gets home, can't wait to tell his older sister about it. Sunday morning, he's like wrestling with the fact that he can't wait to get out the door to come to church so he can tell Steve Cashman, the guy who preached and led for us during that time, and tell me as well about the decision that the Lord had done in his life. He wanted Jesus to get all the glory, to be enthroned in his life. He's glorying in the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. He's excited. Think about this. Because the curse had been lifted from his life. Because Jesus had become that curse. And therefore, he's set free to live in the freedom and joy that Christ provides. I wonder today, do you know that freedom? Do you know that sense of joy? Have you experienced that, the, the, this curse of sin being taken from you? Or, uh, are, are you living in that way today as a follower of Jesus? Maybe this morning you're watching us online or you're going to watch us at some point in the future and you're tuning in and maybe you're sitting here even and you're sitting here thinking, I have never done that in my life. I'm still walking at a guilty distance. Today, the best thing you need to do is put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus. And as a follower of Jesus, maybe the best thing you need to do is get back to that 
simple faith that you once had. Glorying in the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the fact that you were made by God for God. God loves you. Man, he loves you. He loves you. He loves the sinners in the chapter we've read here. He loves them. But he's given them, according to Romans 1, what they desire. They've, they, they've suppressed the truth to such a point that he's just given them over. And so the judgment of God upon their life is exactly what their sin desires for them. They don't understand it. They don't get it. That's why they're rebelling more and more and cursing God. But they're so blind and so dead. They're so hopeless because they're so wrapped up in their own sin and self that they can't see their great need. But it never for one second questions the love of God for them. You may argue, then why doesn't God save them? It's because we all are given a choice. Will we say yes to Jesus and no to sin or continue to flip that like it usually is? No to Jesus and yes to our sin. He gives us what we deserve. So the good news is God loves you. God designed you. God wants to be in a relationship with you. The bad news is that we're all sin. Sinners, we're all broken, we're all separated from God, we're all in that state of moving further and further away from the Lord, desiring our own stuff. But the best news of the gospel is, is that as we've been talking about, Jesus becomes the curse for you and I. He takes your sin, my sin, our sin upon himself, and dies in our place as the sacrificial lamb of God, bearing the sins of the whole world. God's wrath being exhausted on him so that you and I could be forgiven and be set free. Our response to the gospel always has to be one of faith. And so this morning, have you put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus? If not, today is the day you need to be saved. How do I be saved? It's simple. Confess your sin to the Lord. Ask him to forgive you. Walk in obedience to him. Pretty simple. When I was an 18-year-old college kid, I pretty religious, two quiet times a day, knew the gospel. But when the Lord really opened my heart that day to Jesus... I, I knew the gospel message. I understood it. And so what did I do? I got down before the Lord, and I basically said something like this. Lord Jesus, I've been religious. It's never been enough. I need forgiveness for my sin. I surrender. I yield. I confess my sinfulness to you. Change my life. And he did. It's not a formula that you pray. It's a heart that you express to the Lord as you believe the gospel and put your faith and trust in the Lord. In a moment, I'm going to pray, and if that's the need in your life, I'm going to encourage you, cry out to God and ask him to forgive you of your sins. If you're online with this, you can do so. If you're here in the room, you can do that. For believers, we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. One of the things we need to do is to make sure that um, we're walking in obedience to the Lord. You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 talks about how we should not take the Lord's Supper haphazardly or flippantly or, or in an unworthy manner. And so maybe this morning during this response time, as we sing in just a moment with Michael, you just use this time to just have some one-on-one time with the Lord. Allow His Spirit to lead and move in your heart to, to confess sin, known sin, unknown sin, whatever the Lord has put upon your heart this morning, but that you're in a position to rightly and worthily receive the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your goodness and your grace, even in the midst of judgment. Your grace and your goodness is so evident. We praise you for the cross. We praise you for the blood. We praise you for the empty tomb. We praise you for the promptings of the Holy Spirit drawing us to faith, to believe in that historical moment there on Mount Calvary. 
that made salvation possible for us. Lord, I pray for those who need to know Jesus today, that they would faith into you. God, I pray for believers today who, who just sent you moving in their life in, in whatever way. It may be that there is sin that needs to be confessed. It could just be we need to be encouraged. We need to be strengthened. We need to be edified in our faith, whatever it is. Just reassured in your goodness. God, bless us today as we respond to you in faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. God, speak into your life.